0: Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gettler. And this is Episode 6 in our series for 2016, and today's date is Friday the 11th of March. Leon, what's on the program this week?
1: Well, we've got a terrific interview with Kerry Lee Sinclair, who's the CEO of QSR International. She's going to be talking to us all about data and product innovation. So that's going to be terrific. And after that, we're going to have a chat with economist Saul Leslake all about um, how the government is going to be struggling with tax reform. Yeah, they've got nowhere to go, really, that's basically. Right. That's right. Anyway, let's first of all talk to Kerry Lee Sinclair. Kerry Sinclair, tell us about QSR International.
2: Um, so the business actually, oh, sorry, the research software tool started in 1981 out of La Trobe University with two people called Tom and Lynn Richards. And it started very um, around their own needs to try to put some sort of tools to help with qualitative research. Uh, and then in 1995, the company was formed. And then, um, so we're just coming into our 20 years of uh, anniversary uh, with our uh, software called Envivo.
0: And by qualitative research, you mean probing into databases or probing into Papers, documents. How does it work?
2: Um, yes, so it covers. Uh, I guess the, the the difference between quantitative or quant and qualitative, which we call qual, is quant is uh, structured data, uh, typically numbers, um, measures. Qual is everything that is unstructured. So it could be text, could be video, social media, um, many of the um, aspects of it could be literature. Um, it could be um, often a combination um, of an open text field, for example.
1: And so, which ones do you specialize in, or both?
2: Uh, we specialize in qual, um, so that's that's a bit, that's our history. We work very closely with um, what we call purist researchers who are, are qual, who focus only on qualitative. However, what we're fe- what we're seeing now is a lot of um, requests and comments around mixed, what we call mixed methods, which is where you have part of a survey, for example, that's um quantitative and then you have an open text field which is qualitative and you need to be able to put the two of those together.
1: Now, QSR International has offices around the world, doesn't it? That's correct. And so all or- Located close to universities, uh,
2: generally, yeah. I mean, we, we basically followed. We went into Boston um, on the back of uh, the US, obviously, uh, Boston having a high degree of universities. Uh, then into the UK, into near Manchester, and then also into Tokyo.
0: The software in vivo is one is a set of tools, but you've got people that operate it. What are the sort of skills that you're employing?
2: Typically, the researcher um, the researcher comes to the the tool with a a, a problem. So what is your analytical lens is is the way I try to do it. So it's unusual that, you know, a business might think, oh, we have a e-commerce problem. A researcher actually will approach it with what is the the why, not the what is the problem. Why is there a problem? So typically the researcher will approach the tool with uh, an understanding of the type of research they need to do. So is it a phenomenon research, for example? Is it grounded research? Um, And they are hoping to solve different problems And they use the tool then to gather the information, analyze the information, visualize and then ultimately um, use it to you know put into a paper, set of recommendations, um, be peer-reviewed and then published. So that's typically how, how the tool has been used in the past.
0: And this would be re- academic research, but you're also into commercial research as well, aren't you?
2: Correct. So where where we've found, I guess, the interesting thing with, um, I guess, everything that starts in university is people leave universities. Not everyone stays. And when they go, they tend to take the tools that they've used in universities with them. So we have found ourselves working on very interesting studies. Uh, for example, in um, New Zealand, we were used in the rebuilding of the Christchurch um, after the earthquake, because when the community was consultated, there was a combination of post-it notes, there was town forums and um, you know, people writing emails. So how did they pull all that unstructured um, data together? Um, that was an example of how Vivo was used sort of outside of academic purposes.
1: And so you're expanding beyond academia now? You're expanding beyond universities?
2: Correct. And at the moment, we're doing that. Um, we've been doing that uh, via, I guess, uh, osmosis or um, natural growth rather than uh, a strategic growth. So we, we re- recently released a, a product at the end of uh, September, which was very much starting to move more strongly into commercial and government and doing what we call automated insights. So, automated insights is where we actually um, provide the smarts of the tool. Um, um, but don't require you to have the the researcher skill to get an insight. So, for example, you can run it over 18,000 tweets and get a sense of what people are saying that's beyond the 18,000 tweets. For example, you don't have to read all 18,000. You could just pull it all in and, and do um, a very simple word cloud, do some text analytics on it. You can do some sentiment analysis and actually get a sense of what the discussion's really about.
0: So it's a sort of in a in a sense a very basic look at it would be it's super polling in a way isn't it and then analyzing that you know what what a community is going to do i was interested to know if you the market in china the middle class market in china is growing but a lot of companies don't understand what drives that market. Would this be part of what you could do?
2: Correct. And um, researchers are doing those kind of studies at the moment. So typically qualitative research has its roots, sorry, in moving uh, from social research basically. So why do people do the things that people do at a, at a high level? And so when already today, I would I may not have published research, but there will be someone doing that type of research using the product because that's kind of where its strengths are. Um, I think the challenge is then companies are often used for using that kind of research to go to a research firm and to actually get them to do it for them. Um, however, they often have data themselves in-house, which could be quantitative, could be qualitative. So for example, they may already have Chinese customers who are writing them emails? Um, who are writing um, customer surveys to them in Chinese? How do you then bring that also into the research? Is sort of where we see the broadening of the tool. It's kind of the the different degrees or the prisms of the research. You know what? You know everyone will look at it with a slightly different lens, and a corporation may want a you know a more commercial lens on it than a pure researcher who would want you know something that was peer reviewed.
1: But that, that's with corporations. I'd imagine governments would be quite keen users of this as well, particularly with all the reforms going on and uh, keeping track of communities and etc.
2: Yes, we're seeing with um, things like community consultations that are needing to be done, um, there's a couple of issues in it. One is is that, that they can show that a uh, open and transparent process has been followed, and that the community has had an equal, and opportunities, um, op- equal opportunity to say what they want to say. But then there's also replicability. So um, under freedom of information, obviously, this research may be made available at a point later in time, and they want to be able to, 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 you know, show to someone that the research was done. So it's almost a combination of how do you follow the right process? How do you get the right outcome? And then how do you almost archive it or ensure that you can then go back 10 years from now and make sure that, you know, because typically a lot of these challenges that go to the su- Supreme Court, they don't happen the year that someone does it. They happen 10 years down when something happens that's, you know, bad for the government, and then they have to reopen an investigation and find out why these things have happened. So...
1: It would also mean that the government would be driven by quite different imperatives than uh, commercial the world, wouldn't it?
2: Correct. And it's been interesting. I just spent a couple of weeks in the, in the UK working with some of the government um, clients that we have over there, and it's very um, interesting the level of uh, the up, level of uptake and use of the product is directly correlates with their uh, open see, open in transparency and being held accountable. If a government is not interested in transparency being held accountable for what it's doing, it, it's, it's actually directly related to how well they use the product when they actually when they actually go, you know, this is good because I'd rather go to my constituent and say I've made a mistake Um, or this may this this isn't what you want me to do Um, a lot of them are still challenged with that because I think it's you know still a little bit of about votes and
0: there's a lot of your sort of data analysis going on now you know the big data centers got huge amounts of data how does QSR differ and in vivo differ from that sort of analysis you you do much more intensive look at facts don't you
2: I think the big thing, um, if I can kind of break it down into um, into chunks, is that there was sort of the big data kind of problem, which was how do you capture it all? And I think we just got our heads around that. Now people are started analyzing it. And what we're finding is Forrester just did some really re- interesting research that said 10% of the world's data is actually structured. The rest of it's unstructured. So when I come back to that mixed methods challenge that we're seeing in academic and in research, that's really... What, what's happening is um, businesses that are using other tools to do the an- analysis of that are, are only really doing it over structured data, which means they're missing 90% of the picture. And, and what we find is that that's the why. So the inside's not the what. So, for example, at a simple level, your website is dropping people off. So people come to your website, but they're not buying. The um, structured data will tell you that. What that's not telling you is why are they not why are they not buying and that's where the the, the facts that they're leaving you comments on your homepage. page some of them are you using capital letters you know like they you know that's that's the stuff that no one's really looking at in businesses at the moment because it's just so much of it if you imagine like a Walmart or someone just trying to analyze all of that feedback in one platform you need something like nviva
1: can we expect from all of this that governments are likely to become more transparent
2: I think that there's a moving I think there's a move to that. I think, um, you know, one of the things I've found really interesting is, is as I've come in as CEO is, is to actually use the tool for my own purposes. So I've put it on employee service, our employee, internal employee survey results. I've put it on things that I think are impacting the business. And I think the, the, the challenge is always not about the information you find, but then what do you do when you find it? And I think that's the same for commercial and for government is it's often a change management Issue more than it's actually an insight issue. So the insight itself is, in my mind, is only interesting if you do something when you find out about it. So I think that the governments will be challenged by: Do they, if they don't want the insights, then they shouldn't use the tool, and I'm okay with that. But if you want the insights, then what are you going to do to actually deal with that? That the what has to change now because it, it's kind of, to me, it's a it's bad form to have somebody ask you something and then you don't act on it.
0: Inside, of course, is becoming increasingly important, isn't it? Because the rate of change is accelerating all over the place. And I guess you'd try and forecast that based on what had gone before. Would that be part of the job?
2: Look, I think there is. There's a lot of longitudinal studies that use N vivo as a way of seeing what is actually changed, and to also look at how to impact the longitudinal study. So, for example, there's been studies on women's health where certain issues have been picked up um, because of the qualitative data, which has then allowed them to put it into the quantitative data and get empirical evidence about what age it starts and why it starts and and everything, which is which is great. But I think the the bigger challenge is really going to be how do we manage? Like, I think it's 176 million tweets or something like that you know how do you actually it's social media and data is becoming so pervasive it's it is about quantity of it and um, and that's where I think the purist and the pragmatic researcher we will naturally go more pragmatic because you just won't be able to code at all and be a researcher and do across all of the things I mean I sat on a really interesting panel where the researchers were talking about the fact that they don't even they don't even look at social media When they're doing their research because they just don't understand how to actually you know to actually tap into it in a structured process purist researcher driven way whereas of course there's all kinds of tools that are running over social media that are you know back to a bit more pragmatic and just trying to get some sort of insight so i think there is a balance
1: so where do you see in vivo traveling how do you see it developing?
2: Look, I think you know. There's definitely the the um the structure the the bu- the business is all ready to grow into um business and into government. I think government, um, particularly here in Australia, with some of the things that have um have, you know in the last twelve months have changed, and a lot of the focus now. Um, I think there's a big there is a bit more focus on transparency, but also I think um in in government and um and re- and you know other businesses that are really starting to go. You know what we don't want to keep doing things the way we've done them before. We, we do want these insights. And, you know, trying to, I think it's also that, that curious question. I mean, I think, uh, you know, I kind of have this term that I use internally about people who self-select to use Vivo because they're curious people and they're actually interested in what kind of insights they may get. And I kind of feel that that's a natural path as well. You know, there, there are always people in the fringes of life that are curious and want, aren't acceptable with, except media's way of interpreting things or someone else and may actually want to use the tool themselves.
1: Kerry Lee Sinclair, thank you very much.
2: Thank you.
0: Well, that was interesting. Yeah, yeah, apart from anything else, a woman in business.
1: That's right. That's not, it was fascinating. It was actually fascinating listening to her. About all about data, where it's heading. Yeah. and, And the importance of it.
0: Well, more and more. Yeah, that's right. It's a digital world.
1: That's right. And now let's have a chat with Saul Eslake. Saul Eslake. The ex-Treasurer Peter Costello this morning is saying that the government should leave negative gearing, capital gains tax and uh, superannuation off its tax reform agenda. What's your view about that?
3: Well, it's understandable that Peter Costello might take that point of view since he is, in effect, defending his own legacy. It was Peter Costello as Treasurer who made the tax treatment of capital gains much more generous after 1999 than it had been from 1985 when the capital gains tax was first introduced until then. It was Peter Costello who made it possible for people to receive payments from superannuation funds free of tax if they are over the age of 60. It was Peter Costello who significantly loosened the rules around how much people could contribute to superannuation funds and thereby gain considerably more favourable tax treatment than if they invested their funds in other ways. It was Peter Costello who brought in arrangements whereby people over the age of 65 pay less tax on a given amount of income than people under the age of 65 simply by virtue of being over the age of 65. In other words, during his 11 years as treasurer, Peter Costello introduced a number of additional ways in which people who, for the most part, are of higher income or wealth than the average Australians are able to reduce the amount of tax they pay. So uh, he's defending that, and it's not surprising that he would. But he and others who have been urging Scott Morrison and Malcolm Turnbull to steer clear of possible reforms like this are also making it much more difficult for Malcolm Turnbull and Scott Morrison to offer meaningful and significant tax reforms, either in the forthcoming budget or in the rundown to the election to be held sometime after this year's federal budget. What options
1: does that leave the government then?
3: Well, not very many. It may well be that there are changes to superannuation tax arrangements which uh, are still on the table. It's hard to know exactly what's been taken off what's still there, but there are certainly things that the government has indicated it has been contemplating in the past that it's yet completely to rule out. It does appear as though the government isn't prepared to do anything With regard to negative gearing, although Treasurer Scott Morrison had earlier in the year referred to excesses and abuses that he might be willing to look at, now seems as though they're off the table. The government isn't going to do anything with regard to the concessional treatment of capital gains tax, it would seem. There may be something the government could do with regard to workplace and work-related deductions, possibly replacing them with a standardised deduction, as is the Case in some other countries and was briefly the case in the mid 1970s in Australia. But beyond that, it would seem that options for significantly increasing revenue from some sources by broadening the income tax base in order to lower income tax rates, which would be, in my view, a very desirable form of tax reform, uh, options for that kind of reform seem to be narrowing very rapidly and it may well be that the government is unable to offer much more than simply an increase in the threshold at which the t- second top rate of tax becomes payable. That's currently $80,000 in order to prevent people on average weekly earnings from entering that second top tax bracket as they're likely to do at some point during the term of the next parliament in the absence of any change. One would have hoped that there'd have been more complicated Comprehensive tax reform than that. But it looks as though now the chance of more comprehensive tax reforms is receding.
1: The reality is bracket creep. I mean, how much of an issue is bracket creep when uh, wages are growing very slowly now?
3: It's less of an issue than it had threatened to be two or three years back when wages growth was averaging three percent per annum. It- was so then treasury secretary martin parkinson had forewarned likely that in the coming financial year 2017-18 someone on average weekly earnings would have exceeded 80,000 per annum of taxable income, unless they were using various devices like negative gearing to reduce their taxable income relative to their actual income, uh, would have entered the second top tax bracket and thus paying 42 cents in every dollar above 80,000 in tax. Uh, The date at which that threshold is crossed will probably now be somewhat later, but it's still likely to be during the life of the parliament we'll be electing later this year. And could have some adverse impacts on incentives to work and save. So it's not an issue that has been banished forever, even if it isn't looming as soon as had seemed likely a couple of years ago.
1: Well, given that we don't have many options, where does that leave the government in terms of tax reform?
3: Well, uh, between a rock and a hard place, as it were. Um, To be fair to the present government and to make a contrast with the situation that for example applied when the Howard government undertook the last major round of tax reform in Australia back in 2000, there isn't a large budget surplus that can be drawn down in order to ensure that, as it were, every child won a prize, which was the case in 2000 when the Howard government significantly overcompensated pensioners and others who might otherwise have been adversely affected by the introduction of the GST at that time, or as Julia Gillard and Wayne Swan did when they introduced the carbon tax despite having a budget deficit at the time, they overcompensated low-income households for the impact that the carbon tax would have on them. That just underscores how silly it was for Tony Abbott to have kept that compensation for the introduction of the carbon tax despite abolishing the carbon tax uh, and thus exacerbating the budget deficit with which the Turnbull government is still dealing. Uh, And, in my view, as I think I've said in these podcasts before, one of the objectives of tax reform, in my view, should have been to make some contribution to reducing the budget deficit, as well as improving, in Scott Morrison's phrase, incentives to work, save and invest. Uh, we're not going to get much towards either objective out of what is likely to be announced between now and the next election, it would seem. Uh, That doesn't mean the problem goes away. Australia's tax system will still contain numerous disincentives to work, save and invest. It will continue to distort investment decision making and the decisions people make about saving. It will continue to fall short of what I and many others would regard as desirable standards of equitable treatment as across different types of taxpayers, both on similar incomes and different ones. Uh, and those problems will remain until a future government is willing to be more adventurous when it comes to tax reform.
1: In a nutshell, what would you expect the budget or an April tax statement to contain?
3: Uh, well, I think very little now. Uh, it as I said before, may increase at some point in the future the threshold at which the second top rate of income tax, the 42% rate, becomes payable. Uh, if it were to increase any other thresholds below that, for example, the rate at which the 32% re- rate becomes payable, or so the income at which the 32% rate becomes payable, that would cost a lot more than raising either the second top rate or the top rate, although I don't think they'll be raising the threshold at which the top rate becomes payable. Uh, And it's hard to see what much more that the coalition could do, having ruled out so many options for paying for more meaningful tax reforms of that nature. As I say, they don't have a big budget surplus they can draw upon. Uh, On the contrary, there's a deficit which still represents a long-term problem for whoever is in government after the next election. And it does seem regrettable that political considerations have forced the government into a position where there is so little that it can do.
1: It seems to me that all Australian governments seem to struggle with this issue of tax reform, I mean, regardless of which side the political fence they're on.
3: Well, that seems to be the case now. Uh, Certainly at Other times in Australia's history, in 1985 and 1987, for example, under Prime Minister Hawke and Treasurer Paul Keating, and in 2000 under Prime Minister Howard and Treasurer Peter Costello from the other side of politics, there were major tax reforms enacted uh, in both cases in the face of some opposition from the parties that were then in opposition, uh, but it would seem as though the appetite for reform and the capacity of those in government to sell reforms have both diminished now as compared with those earlier
1: occasions. Saul so, like thank you very much for your time.
3: And that's a pleasure, as always.
0: Well, as Saul points out, the government is between a rock and a hard place inside a barrel.
1: That's right. Well, it's a politics that's killed it
0: to some extent it shows up the paucity of real thought and that's right it's just you know pretty disgusting particularly the what the senate's on about that's
1: right that's so
0: right. we look like a double dissolution try and clear them out
1: that's right and so let's let's just see where it goes
0: but i mean something's got to give It just can't go on like this okay so now the news
1: well gary first of all china's export fell for the eighth straight month in February from a year earlier as the world's second largest economy continues to lose momentum. Exports lived 255 Most economists were expecting it to slide by about 15% from a year earlier, following a drop of 11.2%. The figures indicate that China's shipments overseas, once an important engine of growth for the Asia giant, are dragging on its overall economic performance, and it would tell us that China can no longer rely on exports for its growth.
0: No, partly because their pricings rise, their wages are rising. And uh, it looks as though they're going to stimulate the domestic market.
1: That's what they have to do. Now, the iron ore price has posted its largest gain on record after Chinese officials pledged to spend more on building railways and roads. Iron ore spiked 19% to $62 US. Sixty-two U.S. dollars. 60 yeah, and it's nearly
0: sixty-four this morning. That's oh
1: god. Yeah. Well, the commodity is now lifted for all the sessions, and the stunning gains following a, following the weekend announcement. The Chinese government's targeting growth of six point five to seven percent for seven percent for two thousand sixteen, and uh, Chinese Premier Li Cushing has also outlined pledges to spend eight hundred billion yuan. That's about one hundred sixty-four point three billion Aussie on railway construction and one point six five trillion yuan which is about $338.9 billion on building roads. And all of these are really good for steel production, which is really good for iron ore.
0: But bear in mind on the dark side, there's 1.8 million people to be laid off in the construction industry.
1: Well, at the same time, uh, most analysts are saying watch out. This is a sometime thing. It's not a regular thing. I was reading a report from Goldman Sachs saying the realities of supply and demand are going to catch up with this and the price will come down. So let's just watch that space now malcolm turnbull has effectively confirmed the government is contemplating bringing forward the budget by a week in order to leave the door open of an early double dissolution election now asked whether he was considering bringing forward from the scheduled date of may the tenth malcolm turnbull turned all vague when he was told to reporters and he said the budget will be delivered in may that was it now, a double dissolution for July 2 must be called no later than May the 11th, which is a day after the budget's scheduled date. And a May 3rd budget would give it a handful of parliamentary sitting days before May 11 to pass the supply bids and make one last attempt to have the Senate debate the bill to reinstate the powers of the Strand Building Construction Commission. Now, that bill's already been blocked once, and a second refusal to either pass or debate it means it would qualify as a double dissolution trigger. Now, former Treasurer Peter Costello, in an interview with Fairfax Media, has warned the Turnbull government not to touch superannuation, capital gains tax concessions, and he sees no ch- case for changing the rules around negative gearing. And uh, we, we had a chat with uh, Saul Eslake about that.
0: Exactly right. Uh, and Saul, of course, pointed out there's no surprise because Costello was the architect of most of it. That's right. But at the same time, of course, the, the British Council has come out and said negative gearing has got to be a, a changed.
1: Yeah, well, I think it's going to be inevitable. One day it will have to be. Now, construction activity contracted for the third straight month in fe- February. House building activity slumped for the first time in three months. The Australian Industry Group Housing Industry Association Performance Construction Industry fell 0.2 points to 46.1 in February. That means there's not going to be much growth in the housing industry. Now, the retail sector is in for a sharp slowdown this year, according to Deloitte Access Economics. And Deloitte forecasts that retail sales growth will slump from three 3.3% in 2014-15 to 2.4% in 2015 and 2.3% in 2016-17. And in its latest report, it says global challenges will cut the growth. And report author David Rumbin says sale growth has already been moderating from recent peaks for household goods and clothing retailers, which was a standout sectors last year. So that's going to be a bit of a worry. Indeed. Now, job ads in Australia have fallen to their lowest level since October 2015. The ANZ job advertisement series showed job ads appearing on the internet and on newspapers in February fell 1.2% compared with January. And ANZ chief economist Warren Hogan said the fall in ads might reflect market conditions. Now, the Australian economy is experiencing continued non-mining momentum in early 2016, with services sectors generally adding uh, driving the improvement. NAB's latest business survey has found that after falling two points in January, NAB's monthly update has found business conditions improved three points to eight in February, while business confidence was steady at three index points.
0: Yeah, not too bad, actually, after a pretty gloomy beginning.
1: That's right. Now, some interesting corporate news, Gary. The Seven Network has moved another step into the digital age. It struck a deal with Google, which will see premium content screened on Google's online video platform, YouTube. And under the deal, shows like My Kitchen Rules and Home and Away will be screened on YouTube. Now, the content for YouTube will be in snippets, short snippets, while the network's 7 Plus uh, plus 7 streaming service and other catch-up services around the world will host full-length shows and Yahoo! 7 will sell advertising in Australia and 7 West Media will do advertising sales for the rest of the world. Now, this deal potentially broadens the audience for 7. I think it's terrific, Gary, because it allows it to reach audiences over any device and it allows the network to meet advertisers' keen demand for premium online video, which is in short supply. And it's
0: a logical move for, uh, for ch- Channel 7 or indeed any of the free-to-airs uh, because everybody's going onto the internet.
1: Commonwealth Bank has admitted it failed some life insurance customers over life insurance claim. Chief Executive in Narrab has pledge that the bank will update its processes to assist severe heart attacks and the medical factors surrounding claims but the Australian Securities and Investments Commission is investigating the CBA's insurance arm CommonSure, and with the Senate adopting a motion moved by Senator John Williams to broaden the terms of reference of a financial services inquiry to include the $44 billion life insurance industry the CBA and its life insurance arm CommonSure, will be called up for a grilling over poor ca- conduct and this comes after a Senate inquiry recommended for a Royal Commission to the bank's financial planning scandal raising con- and this, all this raises concerns about the CBA's culture I think Gary Four Corners interviewed a heart attack victim whose $1.1 million life insurance claim had been rejected by Comminsure, which claimed the level of the protein troponin in his blood was too low. And this was despite cardiologists saying it was impossible to measure the severity of a heart attack by using only troponin as an indicator. And Fairfax and Four Corners had obtained an email showing Comminsure was aware there'd been a severe heart attack before it rejected the claim.
0: And people wonder why, uh, you know, why why the banks are not trusted. Indeed, indeed.
1: Now, speaking again of the banks, the The court regulator is extending its rate-rigging inquiry beyond the ANZ to include the other banks. The ASIC has compiled telephone records and written communications of the Commonwealth Bank, National Australia Bank and Westpac. And this is in addition to all the material that's been gathering in its case against the ANZ over claims a bank manipulated the bank bill swap rate, which determines the price of billions of dollars of loans across the economy. And Morris Blackburn has confirmed that it's investigating a potential uh, class action over the matter.
0: Well, it's not the first time that a bank around the world has, has done that.
1: Now, uh, amazing news. Andrew Twiggy Forest iron ore miner Fortescue, which has been hammered. By the low iron ore price and looked like it was going out of business, has inked a non-binding memorandum of understanding with Vale, the world's largest producer of iron ore, outlining plans to produce and pursue additional values for China's chi- customers in the Chinese steel industry, and they're ramping up competitiveness in their operations. And the pact also outlines a framework for Vale to potentially invest in Fortescue, take up to fifteen percent of the company, or invest in current or future mining assets. And this deal sees the formation of one or more joint ventures with the. Of some of the more iron ore for both companies, designed to better suit the needs of Chinese steel makers. So I think that's pretty exciting.
0: And it was cold call from Twiggy just rang him up and said, "How about it?"
1: How about it? Amazing! Is it
0: amazing? Yeah, he's really good. And they're going to average the quality values, or uh, as much higher quality than Fortescue's, but they can blend it, and uh, that should improve the profits. Certainly improve the profits for uh, Fortescue.
1: Now, uh, West Farmers has overtaken rival retailer Woolworths to become Australia's biggest company by revenue, knocking trouble giant BHP Billiton off its perch. And a report from Ibis World Consultant says Westfarmers nabbed the number one spot with revenues of $62.8 billion in the 2015 financial year after growth of 3.9%. And the Research House's annual survey of the top 1,000 public and private companies and government organisations showed rival retailing group Woolworths remained in the number two spot, but its revenues declined 0.1% to 6.1.1 1000000000 during the same period. And Ibiswell said West Farmer's home improvement brand Bunnings, vastly superior results compared with significantly smaller competitive masters, had assisted the company to trounce its rival. And of course, we remember Woolworths last month unveiled a first half net loss of uh, $972.7 million, which which was its first loss in more than 20 years.
0: And, of course, Masters is on the block. They just want to get out of it.
1: And the final bit of news, Gary, is that Queensland Nickel has a surprising new owner. It's billionaire MP Clive Palmer. Now, Kavama has sacked the company's administrators and has taken back operational control of Queensland Nickel by setting up a new company. And with a fresh $23 million cash injection to keep the ailing refinery open, Palmer sacked FTI Consulting as the managers of a Yabalu refinery, set up a new company to take control. And that followed an urgent meeting FTI held with major creditors to discuss the Palachik government's $10 million financial lifeline. And that offer was extended on the condition that Clive Palmer exits the business. Now, this new arrangement will see FTI Consult Remaining control of resolving Queensland Nickel's hundred million dollar debt to major creditors like listed railway company Horizon, but Palmer's new company Queensland Nickel Sales, owned by his company's Q I Resources and QNI Metals, will take over Yabaloo. And Palmer said the extra twenty-three million paying for the takeover came from recovering, from the recovering nickel price, which had served eighteen percent past three years. One thing for sure, Gary, it certainly didn't come from the banks, which had knocked back his request for funding last year in the lead up to Queensland Nickel being placed in administration.
0: Tell you what, though. I've never give us up, Wriggle, wriggle.
1: No, absolutely. And that's it for this week, Gary. Great, Leon. And, uh, and next week, we've got a terrific interview with Monica Rosenfeld, who's the Managing Director of Wardstorm PR. And that'll be terrific. And in the meantime, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter at TalkingBizBizZZ or on Facebook. Take care, and we'll talk to you next week.